Welcome back to another episode of Discussions on Management and Governance. This is the Public Management Research Association's spo sponsored Facebook Live series. Um, today, Nathan Vivero and I will be talking with Professor Tina Nabachi about a new paper she has in uh, the journal, Perspective, Public Perspective, Perspectives on Public Management and Governance. I'm botching it today. And that paper is Public Values, Frames, and Administration and Governance. Um, so thanks for being with me today, Nathan. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great, other than watching basic words this afternoon. Um, I'm happy it's spring. I'll say that. Oh, it is. Is it nice in D.C.? It is beautiful here. How about there? It is beautiful in Georgia today. I'm loving the weather. Um, well, Go ahead, sir. Should I introduce Tina? That would be wonderful. Yeah, today we're going to be talking to Tina Nabachi, and she is an associate professor at the Maxwell School at Syracuse. She is the co-director of the Collaborative Governance Initiative there and a research associate with the Program for the Advancement of Research on Conflict and Collaboration. Um, her areas of interest are quite broad, but include public management, policy and law, public participation, collaborative governance, and conflict resolution. Um, so if you want to see the full list of what she works on, go check out her CV. Yeah, it is a quite uh, packed CV there, Tina. I was looking back through it before we uh, before we were talking to you. You've been quite busy. Uh, well, I love my job, and I list it all. No shame. <laughs> I think that's a way to do it. Isn't that the whole purpose of the CV? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so I, we have a few questions we want to hit on today, Tina, but we mostly want to just kind of delve into your to your paper and talk a little bit about value and values and public value and public values and uh, wrestle a little bit with your paper. I think Nathan had a, an initial kind of question to get us started. Yeah, and let me make sure we say the title of the paper because I'm not sure we did yet. It's Public Value Frames in Administration and Governance. So one of the things, Tina, that you talk about near the beginning is this um, distinction between value and public value. Um, so what's the difference between the, those two things? What makes a public value different than some other sort of value? Well, I think there are kind of a bunch of concepts in those words that we have to unpack. So there's the difference between value, something has value, it has worth, and the creation of public value where we're trying to appraise what government does or what how it sustains things for the public. And then values, which are more than just tacking on that little S at the end. I think values are about these kind of socio-emotional, personal judgments um, that provide us these kind of guides or standards for our lives. And when we talk about public values, those are the, um, the standards, the ideals, the norms that we expect government to pursue and uphold. And of course, those things are related, right? So when we pursue public values, we may be creating public value, or if we've created public value, then we've upheld particular values. But I think that there are distinct concepts and they often get conflated in the literature. And I, I hate conflation. So I tried to unpack those a little bit at the beginning. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. So um, one of the things, of course, uh, the, the, the values that, that people hold um, and especially the public values that people hold might differ a little bit from one setting to another, um, depending especially on maybe the, 
the governmental tradition, right? Um, and in this paper, I think you mostly focus on the, the US context and maybe the democratic context more broadly, is that right? That is absolutely right. So definitely this paper is from an American perspective, from the American setting, and I'd love to see it expanded into other democratic settings and then into non-democratic settings. But to try to tackle all of that in one paper was just too much. So I, I narrowed. And it's definitely U.S. context-based. And I, I think what you said about the kind of possibility of people bringing multiple values to the table for an issue is exactly right. This is why values are important for us to figure out, uh, right? Because we have values pluralism, and that leads to values conflict. And then it's the job of individual administrators, public agencies, public policymakers, uh, to figure out how we reconcile those conflicts and which values we elevate over other ones and under what circumstances. Yeah, I, I, I could jump in, Nathan. Um, I, I think it might be useful to zoom out a little bit after kind of establishing that these terms mean different things and um, and and think about the history a little bit of how we've thought about public values and thought about um, what those have looked like for administration throughout the literature. So you, you do a little bit in the paper talking about democratic and bureaucratic ethos and what those mean. And you ultimately conclude, and I have a quote here that is, thus, although democratic and bureaucratic ethos have been useful in shaping the debates about specific issues, they do not help sort through on the ground issues related to values, plurality in public administration and governance. So maybe uh, how you tell us kind of what, how you think of bureaucratic and democratic ethos and why ultimately you think the kind of this frames approach that you go with is, uh, is a little bit more practical than this kind of dichotomy between the democratic and bureaucratic ethos. Sure. Uh, first, let me say I'm very impressed at how prepared you are having quotes from the paper. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so one of the things, so uh, I mean, backing up a little bit, I love public administration. I'm a public administration nerd. I think it is the most interesting field that is out there. And one of the things that I think is uh, really sexy in public administration that's really interesting to me are, is this tension we have between bureaucracy and democracy and how that unfolds at the systems level, in organizations, and then at the individual level. And so there's been this um, kind of these two frameworks, bureaucratic ethos and democratic ethos, which really emerged and started to be articulated in the 1960s. I mean, we can see traces, particularly of bureaucratic ethos, back to the founding of, of the field. Um, but so bureaucratic and democratic ethos have been these these frameworks that we've used to explore various issues in public administration, whether those are issues around uh, policies, public policies that we might be using, or whether they're in uh, issues that are happening internal to organizations or that are happening for the individual public administrator. And so I've been fascinated by this concept of bureaucratic and democratic ethos for a really, really long time. And then this might be giving more information than you actually want. Uh, so feel free to tell me to, to, to tone it down or to, to quiet down there. But um, when I came to the Maxwell School, one of the first classes I was asked to teach was a class called Public Administration and Democracy, right? Which was perfect for me. It was really about these tensions between bureaucratic and democratic ethos. 
And I've been teaching that for a long, long time now. And I love it. It's my one of my favorite classes. Um, but as I after a few years of teaching and I, I realized that these two frameworks, bureaucratic and democratic ethos, they're really kind of inadequate for helping us to understand values plurality, but maybe even more importantly, the values conflicts that we see in public administration. So on the one hand, those two frameworks are super generalized, right? They haven't been fully articulated and specified. Um, so for example, democratic ethos has these really broad terms like citizenship and social equity and justice. And how do we operationalize those in, in a setting? Those are, are really um, important, but hard to define and bound concepts. And then bureaucratic ethos has these things that are typically very clear, like efficiency or effectiveness or accountability. Well, maybe not accountability, but they have these these clearer terms. Um, so, so they're they're general concepts, and then they're also conflated, right? So, for example, um, in bureaucratic ethos, we'll talk a lot about efficiency, but efficiency is both kind of around administrative efficiency, and it's also around cost efficiency. And so, we've tended to kind of pull in this market thinking with bureaucratic ethos um, in a way that I think is problematic. Yeah, and I, I also like how you, in the paper, talked about these, the tensions in particular between the democratic and bureaucratic ethos. And I'm, I'm thinking about with the bureaucratic ethos, the ideas of uh, hierarchy and authority, whereas some of the democratic ones are more like, you know, liberty and justice and, and freedom and those types of things. And that they really are, um, they really kind of clash with some, you know, basic like Weberian Vab uh, uh, models of authority and rational legal authority versus ideals of uh, uh, complete citizen participation and right. individual liberties really uh, almost by definition are in conflict there. Absolutely. I mean, you can think of all of these things that we typically associate with bureaucracies like merit, right, and chain of command. Uh, and then these more democratic principles like voice and access and representation. And those things are often, um, they often challenge each other. But, but to make it even more complicated, and one of the reasons why I thought bureaucratic and democratic ethos was, was really problematic was because we can have all sorts of other values that matter that aren't quite bureaucratic and aren't quite democratic. So if you think about things like crime policies, there's competition among values like liberty, safety, due process, effectiveness, access, justice, right? Or if we think about security policies, thinking about national security, uh, things like knowledge generation or information sharing versus confidentiality and privacy. And it's unclear where a lot of those values fall in that bureaucratic democratic, um, like dichotomous way of viewing the world. Yeah, and it doesn't give us a lot of uh, information on how to order certain values either in any individual context. I mean, one of the, which I think we're sort of making our way to the frames and the argument you have there about how context matters for evaluating different, uh, the preference of different values within these different frames. But this dichotomy really doesn't give us a way to think about how to order all these various sets of values, not to mention the ones that don't, to your point, don't even really fit in these two dichotomies. Right, absolutely. And they don't give us ways to order them. 
They don't give us ways to think about the logics behind particular values or particular ways of approaching something. And I don't think they tell us what the tools are for realizing particular values. Um, so I love the bureaucratic versus democratic concept. I think that's really interesting and it's a good foundation. But if we're going to advance public values research, and my goal here was to help give some structure to public values to kind of define some of the boundaries among the most predominant values we see, at least today, in public administration, um, then those two frameworks are, are, are less useful for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that comes to mind as we talk about this is um, I, I came across this report. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact name of it. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, Opportunity, Responsibility, and Security. And it's this um, consensus report that was written by um, a bunch of scholars. Um, they got they got scholars from the sort of political right and the political left in the U.S. Um, to get together. Um, it was sort of co-sponsored co by the American Enterprise Institute and Brookings, as well as some other groups, I think. Um, and they sat down and tried to come up with some ideas about how to confront poverty in the U.S. And um, one of the first things that they did was they, they identified what sort of their key values were that they were trying to uphold. And I don't remember the exact values that they came up with, um, but I, I think they had maybe three core ones. And I went to this panel at um, APAM, the APAM conference, where they, they were, some of the authors were there and they were talking about it. And one of the things that they said was that they actually didn't have any disagreement about those three values and that they should be there and that they were the most important values. Most of the disagreement came in terms of how the three should be ordered. And the conservatives had like a clear bent um, and the, the liberals had a clear bent in terms of how they wanted to order those values. And a lot of their differences on policy came about from having ordered those values differently rather than just, you know, they all agreed that all those values were important. I don't know. I, I, I thought that was a, an, a, an interesting illustration of how some of this ordering stuff is really important. Um, and it's not enough just to say, here are some of the values that we want to pursue, some of the public values that, that we want our governments to pursue. Um, we, we really have a lot of tough conflicts that come out. Absolutely. That sounds like a great report, Nathan. Will you send that to me? Yeah, certainly. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Well, remember, maybe we can link it to the, uh, the video as well. So maybe we'll try to provide that to the viewers as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, maybe we should, should we jump in now to talking a little bit about the frames? Um, sure. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about what you mean by a frame. Um, you sort of talk about there being three components, um, content values, rationality, and methods that you focus on. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe, I don't know if you have a, a broader sort of definition of what a frame is first um, that you want to talk about, or if you want to just jump into explaining what those three components are. So, um, so part of what I meant here by a frame was to think about kind of the lens for understanding. To, I want I use the word frame as really this kind of just a word that basically indicates that I'm giving structure to something to give it meaning. Um, you know, it's a the lens through which I'm going to tell the story of this particular set of values. Uh, so. You know, it was just uh, framing, right? A way to kind of frame the discussion and, and frame each of these uh, these kind of four areas that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, and am, am I correct in sort of um, suggesting that a lot of times people, when they maybe approach some of these topics, they 
mostly are thinking about it through one of these frames, maybe, um, where they might, or at least they emphasize one of the one of the four frames. I don't know. Do you, would, do you think that's fair? No, I think that's a fascinating question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think some people certainly have a penchant for viewing the world through a particular frame, right? So we can think of those scholars out there who are very focused, for example, on kind of the legal issues of public administration. And so they view the, wor the world through that. Or we can think of other scholars and practitioners and politicians and others who talk about running government like a business. And so they view the world through this very market-oriented frame. But then I think there are other scholars there who maybe take this more kind of Catholic view of, of values, uh, and they're using multiple frames, sometimes very deliberately and sometimes unconsciously, right? So I think a lot of time people will kind of mix up um, democratic political values with legal values, or they'll, they'll merge and integrate organizational values and market values. And so my goal here was really to to draw some boundaries, and I'll say right up front, these are ideal types, right? It's never like this in the real world. And um, and I don't think public administration can or should operate in any one of these value frames alone. But for me, this was more, you know, kind of, um, well, it was more than an intellectual exercise, but for the frames, it was really that kind of thinking through how do I present this in a way that's logical, hopefully, and makes sense, hopefully, yeah. Well, well, it made sense to me. So hopefully it does to others as well. Um, let's, let's jump in now to those, those three components and sort of just quickly defining what they are. Um, you talk about uh, content values. What are content values? So these are the, kind of the constellation of core values that give substance to the frame, that, give, that provide the foundation for the frame. They are the, the core values um, that we want to try to achieve in this particular view. Okay. And actually, to, to back up just a bit and clarify, each of these four frames is going to be defined separately on these three dimensions. So the first dimension is content values, and then there's also going to be a different um, mode of rationality for each of the four frames. What's a mode of rationality? Yeah, that sounds like uber academic and kind of lame, but um, <laughs> I meant... Um, so how do we exercise reason to reach conclusions about an issue? What's the, what's the reasoning that we use to figure out what we're trying to do in this particular frame? And I think tying very closely to that rationality or mode of rationality is the methods, right? Yeah. What, are, what, are the, what do you mean by predominant methods? Um, by this, I meant what are the... Um, the the specific tools that we use to realize those values, right? So we can espouse, for example, participation, and then the method to get participation, one method for getting participation is through voting, right? So uh, these are the tools that we use to realize the values. Great. So well, let's run through those four main frames now um, that, that you've given. So we have um, political, you've already alluded to several of them, political, legal, organizational, and market. So yeah. what are sort of the, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack here, but what are some of the high points? Um, what yeah. is the political frame? So, okay, so backing up, if we, if we agree that democratic and bureaucratic ethos aren't quite the right formulations for all of this, 
we might think of these four frames as disaggregating that. And then political and legal would fall more closely in the democratic ethos view and organizational and market would fall more closely in the bureaucratic ethos view. Um, so for the political frame, I mean, this has a long history in public administration and political theory. Um, some of the core values there are participation, representation, political responsiveness, liberty, and all of the liberties that come under that label of liberty um, and equality, right? And our our way of reasoning in politics is really grounded in history and in political philosophy. It's substantive rationality, if you'll forgive the nerdy word there. Um, so our, our, our way of reasoning here is very deductive. It's deontological, where we're trying to be guided by the, it's the, um, the principles that matter, not the outcomes. Um, and then we use a lot of different methods to realize participation, representation, political responsiveness, liberty, equality, um, both indirect and direct participation. So voting and then all of the myriad participatory processes we see in government. Um, we do all of those institutions that we have, like courts um, and free press and others to kind of realize liberties and equalities, civic education, methods for aggregating interests. Those are kind of all the tools we use to realize the political frame. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I think that's important to, to recognize here and um, is that uh, I think, I mean, the, the, the sort of most obvious in a democracy means of creating this sort of political values coming through the system is elections. Um, but yeah. there's so many other ways that this occurs, um, like you talked about, interest groups, um, and the ways that those affect the decisions that get made in the political process or in the in the bureaucracy. Um, and then, of course, there's all these, I think recently there's been a lot of attention to sort of these more bottom-up approaches. I think that, that touches on some of your other work that you've done um, where, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of efforts that bureaucracies are making to engage citizens directly and give them direct input into how they, they run the organization. Um, and all of that can sort of fall under this political frame, right? Absolutely. And I would just point out that a lot of those other participatory processes that direct participation outside of voting, that those are required by law. I mean, sometimes people are like, oh, normatively participation is desirable. And I always have to say, wait a minute, this is enshrined in our legal framework, right? The words public involvement, public participation, some variation on that are in the U.S. Code over 200 times and in the Code of Federal Regulations over a thousand times. So like, this is not just normative stuff. This is a requirement of public administration. Yeah. Yeah. And that leads, I mean, that's sort of a nice uh, segue into the legal framework. And so here I, you, you highlight a different set of content values, things like individual and substantive rights, which is what the legal system is built on, procedural due process, equity, and then lay out some of the, the modes of rationality to use the nerdy term again, yep. and the predominant methods. What are the, what are the kind of the modes of rationality and the predominant methods associated with the trying to achieve individual substantive rights, procedural due process and equity in the legal framework? Yeah. So the legal framework uses legal rationality. Anybody, I know that's, that's uh, maybe tautological, right? But <laughs> Anybody who's taken a law class knows IROC, right? Issue reasoning, outcome, conclusion. It's or uh, analysis, issue reasoning, analysis, conclusion. It's the the 
the way of thinking that legal scholars and attorneys that people in the legal field use to understand um, what's happening in a particular case. So it's they use both inductive and deductive reasoning simultaneously. They look at the issue that's happening. They look at the rules that apply from law and from precedent uh, and what the, body, the facts are of the particular case through their analysis. And then they come to an, a conclusion based on that. So it's this very kind of particular systematic way of reasoning through a process to reach a conclusion. And then the, the methods of the legal framer, adversary procedure, right? This is going to court. This is uh, adjudication, litigation, but also alternative dispute resolution processes and things like rulemaking or uh, investigation, prosecution, negotiation, um, those kind of uh, what we would really see in the legal profession, uh, the, the tools for guiding decision-making in the legal profession. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how they strike very different uh, the tools, and, and that's one of the things that I think is really useful for your classification here is you can start to see some of the different approaches that are used, not only to kind of organize the actual values, but an adversarial approach to achieving those values is a lot different than uh, public participation through voting or direct participation. These are really very different tools working to achieve, you know, important values, but also, you know, different values. I think that's right. And so one of the conclusions, uh, which some people might roll their eyes at, but is that is context matters, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about uh, elevating a particular set of values over another, then you have to have the methods and the approaches that will seek to do that, uh, that will that will help to realize those values. So out of the context of this paper, for example, I do a lot of research in public participation. And, um, and you know, if we think that participation is really about representation and voice and liberty, then it doesn't make sense that we use these very kind of um, hierarchical, rationally established procedures to engage the public because those tools are misaligned with the values, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Well, trucking on through just so we can cover the all four of them and then follow up with some kind of thoughts about them. Then after the legal framework, the one you cover in the paper is the organizational uh, framework. And so yes. what, what kind of makes up the parameters? This is the one that as public administration scholars, I feel like uh, that you, which you also say in the paper, these are ones that we are more comfortable with often. Yeah, I think these are the ones where kind of the field was born into a little bit and that we all uh, study and, and, and particularly as the field has narrowed or separated from political science and some other social sciences traditions, I think this is where we've honed in on. So these are kind of all of those organizational values that we would traditionally associate with bureaucracy. So things like administrative efficiency, specialization and expertise, formalization, merit, um, this kind of uh, organizational loyalty, uh, this kind of inside the organization values. And the rationality there, I call it technocratic and functional rationality. Um, and this is like, a, this is very much in contrast to political uh, rationality or substantive rationality. It's instrumental reasoning. It is teleological where we're focusing on the ends, not the means. What matters are the outcomes. Um, it's very utilitarian in that perspective, kind of drawing on uh, John Stuart Mills and Jeremy Bentham. 
Um, and so those that way of thinking we use in a, several, a body of tools, things like hierarchy, right? Hierarchy is meant to reinforce all of, the, it's a tool for achieving all of those values. Uh, we might also think about networks and collaborative management. Uh, empiricism, I think is a big tool that we use here um, and kind of scientific methods where we look at our procedures and we assess those against our values to see whether we've achieved our goals and objectives. Yeah, and as far as nuts and bolts, one of the big methods I think that we use here is um, cost-benefit analysis. And we've seen, yeah. I think, especially in recent years, a really big push towards that. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Which, which yeah. maybe overlaps a little bit, too, with the market perspective. Yeah, these two are a little tougher to separate out. Um, uh, so the market perspective, I think that this is... On the one hand, it's always been part of public administration, right? So when Wilson wrote his 1887 piece, he talked about the public administration is the uh, is business administration, right? And something about a counting house. Um, I can't remember that quote. Justin, pull it out from the paper, please. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the quote from the paper is a practical science of administration is the the object of administrative study is to discover first what government can properly and successfully do, and secondly, how it can do these proper things with the utmost possible efficiency and at the least possible cost, either of money or of energy. See, I got you. And smiley faces. I love it, Justin. Um, so yeah, this one was harder to separate out. So on the one hand, it's always been part of public administration, but then I think it really took on new force and meaning in the 1980s when we had all of these kind of neo-Taylorist reforms and we saw conservative right-wing politicians pushing for more for running government like a business. Um, and so the values here are really around cost savings and cost efficiency, uh, not uh, productivity, flexibility, innovation, entrepreneurialism, right? Those are the things that we, we matter and uh, that matter here. And it, it's also a little bit like the organizational frame in that it uses instrumental rationality, but it's reinforced by kind of the notions of economic liberalism and economic individualism. And um, the tools here, I mean, you could sum them up with all of the tools that fall under that mantra of running government like a business, right? So the, all of those market-oriented reforms like privatization, competition, right-sizing, downsizing, voucher programs, commercialization, uh, all of those kind of tools that help us realize those market-oriented values. So that gives us a lay of the land of the four frames that you lay out. Mm -hmm. And to kind of add one more piece to it, I want to talk just a moment about the itinerant values, because these are some values that you identify as not neatly fitting into either of these uh, content values for either of these frames, but that are still kind of central to public administration and could be interpreted depending on the on the frame. So professionalism, for example, is one that you mentioned and uh, kind of in passing, and you can easily imagine, which is what you say in the paper, how that might look different across these frames. I mean, if you just take the professional ethos within those frames of the people working kind of on the ground, you can see some different professional ethics of what professionalism means being a, an attorney is different than being an economist, which is different than being a public administrator, uh, which is different than being a politician. I mean, you can really yeah. easily, just one clear example there of how it does matter on what frame or what the context is. 
Exactly. And I know the word itinerant, so itinerant public value is not a grumpy public value. I know that that's what it makes it sound like, but I couldn't come up, honestly, I couldn't come up with another word. I talked about floating values for a while because uh, they kind of, but they don't float between things. They just have different meanings. So by itinerant, I meant that they, they take on different meanings uh, on these frames. And I think the professionalism one is a great one. Accountability is a great one too, right? Um, so, you know, accountability in a political frame is maybe it's accountability to to your citizens and your subjects, whereas in a market frame, it might be to your to your clients um, or to I don't know, to, and then, or to your customers. Right. And so so the notion of accountability changes there. And the, the same thing around um, things like legitimacy, what's legitimate in a legal frame might not be legitimate in uh, a political frame or, you know, in a market frame might not be politi politically uh, legitimate. So, so I think some of the most, this is the part that I would really love to see others unpack because I think it might be the most interesting piece. And I just kind of ran out of steam as I was thinking about this, totally honest. Um, but I think, you know, some of the most important values in public administration have different meanings based on how we look at them and, and what situation we're trying to apply them. And that's what makes, I think, the study of public values so hard, but also so fun and so interesting. I love untangling all those kind of thorny, naughty issues. Yeah, I think, and I think the other, so I think the trying to identify the sort of floating um, or angry, do we say they're angry values? Was that what we went with? Grumpy. Um, <laughs> grumpy. <laughs> um, they're not I, grumpy I or angry. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting piece. And, and the other piece that I that I come back to, which isn't really returned to uh, at the end of the paper that I, that your paper leaves me really pondering still is also, which values are important? Not only which public values we should be aspiring to, but also what are the important normative, you know, to kind of use some of the Bozeman language that you talk about in the paper, sort of this normative consensus values and in which directions should society be moving? What things should society value? And, you know, that has often been the realm of either philosophy or religion um, but I think it's a really important, uh, you know, we were talking before the broadcast about some of the coming up with administrative efficiency through the use of artificial intelligence and uh, algorithmic learning. And it really, to me, begs the question of what direction do we need to point this administrative apparatus? You know, what are what are the values, even though we know that context does matter? What, what really types of things are we pushing for as public servants or public administrators? And I think it's a really fascinating question. I, I agree. I mean, one of the reasons I love public administration so much is I, I think we're the, dis and this sounds really pretentious. So, <laughs> so everyone be prepared. So apologies in advance. But I, I really think we are the discipline of shaping societal affairs, right? The, both in terms of practice, we set the context and we, we determine what happens in the most mundane aspects of people's lives, like the safety of their toothpaste, to these most profound things about their ability to 
to travel and have to have movement and to have voice. I mean, we really shape all of these incredibly important pieces of people's everyday lives. I used to challenge my undergraduate students. I'd pull out a $50 bill and wave it around and say, I'll give this to you if you can name one thing that I, that I can't connect to public administration, mm. right? I never gave my money away and I'm not putting that challenge out on Facebook. But I think you're right. We have this incredibly profound impact on people's lives and that's, to me, why this study of values is, is really important. Um, and to think about how do we create value for society while simultaneously upholding um, public values for people. And I don't know if there's an answer to your question, Justin. I, I don't know if there's one single set of values that we should pursue over another. I mean, sometimes, you know, I when I'm thinking about education, efficiency isn't my number one choice, right? I want, I want equity, right? I want uh, access when I think about education. But when I'm at in line at the airport and TSA is happening, man, I want someone to channel their inner Frederick Taylor, right? I want efficiency in motion. I don't really care about, I guess I do care about things like equity, but um, I do in that context. But I, I want to see the process moving quickly. Um, and so I don't know that we can elevate once and for all one set of values over another, I think we have to think about it in the particular context for the particular issue at hand. Yeah. Yeah, and to me, one of the things that these frames highlight is the lack of consensus around these, yeah. these values, right? I mean, and maybe I'm just drawn to pay attention to the areas where there isn't consensus, mm -hmm. because those are the ones that are interesting to me most of the time, whereas if we all agree, maybe I, I kind of tune that out. Um, but you you see so many ways in which um, the values that are front and center can be different depending on which frame you're taking. Um, and the actors within each of these frames, like sort of the key center stage actors, have different perspectives, right? I mean, the, the public isn't agreed on on what should be our primary values. The courts aren't agreed on what should be our primary values. The you know within organizations, bureaucrats don't agree on what our, our primary values should be. And um, I don't maybe that I'm not as concerned about that in the in the market thing. I mean, different actors take different approaches and stuff like that. Um, but at any rate, it, it it really highlights to me the the lack of consensus, which which is part of what makes this public values area in my mind so difficult um, yeah. because if there were a clear consensus it would be pretty straightforward to to go for i mean not it wouldn't be easy but it would make it a lot easier to then go forward and start thinking about how can our bureaucracy maximize these things but if we can't even agree on what the things are that they should be maximizing um it gets it gets really hard um to think about how we go and design our bureaucracies based on these values I, I think you're you're totally right. I agree with everything you just said. And going back to the the report you mentioned earlier around the the right and the left coming together to talk about poverty, well, there was some consensus on on three values that mattered, right? And so sometimes, and maybe this is naive or maybe it's idealistic, but I often think, wow, if we could start our policy conversations, at least in the public sphere, around the values we want then maybe we can figure out how to uphold them instead of starting our conversation with what's the solution everybody's arguing for, 
right? Mm -hmm. So I often think, you know, we start the negotiation with the solution at hand rather than an understanding of what the problem is and what our ultimate objectives are as a society. And, and I, that's one of the things I really like about your frames too, is it allows us to kind of have some yardstick for thinking about um, sort of given that this is a little bit of a, of a messy terrain, it at least paints a little bit of a picture of the terrain for us to start thinking about, hey, there is some, there's a lot of disagreement, but what are some of the things that within these frames we might agree on, right? And within the area of the legal frame, you know, I think you could get a lot of uh, agreement on the content values you have there. Yeah. And when you're looking at a, at a market-based tool or a market-based approach, I think people would most would be able to agree with your content values there. And so what's really nice about this paper is it starts to give us a little bit of, of language or terrain for not just talking completely past one another, which is why I, we thought it was kind of important to start with some of the definitions because this space just gets so messy so quickly because when someone says value or values or public value or public values, we're not even speaking the same language. And then even once we start speaking the same language, we're going to disagree on what the the best value is or even what the public value should be. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, this is really nice because it lets us talk about, okay, from a, a looking at it through a legal framework on this particular policy arena, what, what things are we trying to maximize in a legal framework and how might that be useful while also thinking about the administrative or the organization framework. And so that at least makes it feel like we're less just kind of fumbling around in the dark. Wow, Justin, that's the biggest compliment. I appreciate that. <laughs> a question that I ask all the time is, uh, uh, and all my doctoral students would, would laugh hearing me say this, but it's, so what, right? Why do we care? And when it came to this paper, answering the so what question was so challenging for me. I mean, I really, I struggled mm -hmm. with that for just a long time. I, I, I felt it was important, but I, I had a really hard time articulating it. So if you think that it helps us not talk past each other and then it maps the terrain, then I will take that. Thank you, fine, sir. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it did. I think it, it, it doesn't quite tell us which values to choose, but that wasn't your, that wasn't your goal. I mean, it really helps us to use some of your language earlier, disaggregate what was already in place, which is some of the democratic ethos and bureaucratic ethos. And it doesn't resolve or isn't the final word on how to disentangle those, but it really kind of texturizes that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I do think there are maybe, and again, this is an area where I think we need to do more research and more thinking, but maybe the frames provide some guidance for thinking about what matters in a particular case. So if we're thinking about providing standardized routine services, like issuing passports or issuing driver's licenses at the DMV, uh, then that market frame uh, might work really well, right? Because we're, we want to maximize cost effectiveness. We want to be innovative. We want to be able to get things done uh, quickly. But if we're talking about particular classes or groups of individuals who are or are not eligible for services like immigrants or welfare recipients or prisoners, then I think we have to really think about those legal values of protection of due process, of those individual substantive rights. Um, and if we're making decisions about kind of what's happening inside the organization around our internal activities and procedures, like how we process FOIA paperwork or how we 
you know, implement AI and new technologies in our organization, then that organizational frame might be relevant. Um, but if we're talking about making decisions around big policy matters uh, that are going to have all sorts of external impacts, then then we need to maybe think about the political frame and how we designate eligible beneficiaries or site infrastructure projects. So I, I think there's some guidance in the frames, but um, but I, I leave that to others in the future to really unpack. I'd also love to see others really use the frames to illustrate and unpack policy conflicts. Mm. You know, I mean, this, not like there's a shortage of them in the world, <laughs> right? So I'd love to see somebody kind of try to apply the frames to different policy conflicts and policy matters. Yeah, I can imagine lots of lots of interesting arenas where you can take a complex kind of classic wicked problem and apply these different frameworks to it as ways to to maximize overall public values through using some set of these frames as an analysis. Right. Yeah be like a Rashomon or like um, Graham Allison's uh, essence of decision-making where you could apply it for each different frame and mm -hmm. different conclusions based on it. So look, we just, we generated paper ideas this afternoon too. So I think that's, that's right. a huge win. <laughs> We're about to pick them up. Uh, Nathan, you got any other questions on, on your end uh, that are, that we haven't gotten so. to? Tina, think anything? So. We hit the whole article, didn't we, Tina? I think so. Um, the only thing that I would say, which is maybe a little bit embarrassing, but I think is really useful, especially for doctoral students and junior scholars, is to say that I worked on this piece for years. And when I first wrote it, I thought it was like this brilliant masterpiece that was going to win all of this acclaim. And I sent it to two journals who shall not be named. Well, I sent it to the first journal. And it got rejected, like flat out. People were like, what the what is this? This doesn't make any sense. And so I was heartbroken, but I worked on it. And I sent it to another journal and it got a major R&R. &R. And at this point, I was just so disappointed that I set it aside and I didn't touch it for years, literally years. And then uh, as PPMG was coming out, I resurrected it. And that time and space and distance allowed me to see things a little bit clearer and with a little more, I don't know, nuance than I had been before, had before. And so I did some revisions and um, I hope people find it useful or interesting, or at least it sparks debate somewhere out there. But for, for doctoral students, for junior faculty, you know, just, just know that sometimes it can take a long, long time for a piece to really come to fruition. Don't be dis don't be disappointed and hold on to all of your old papers because you never know when they'll come back. I like that advice. I, uh, sometimes there are days when I certainly need to hear that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> All right. Well, this was, uh, thanks so much, Tina, um, for chatting with us. This was a lot of fun. Um, it's it's fun to discuss. a lot of fun. Thank you both for hosting and for doing all of this. It's really a great contribution. Yeah, thank you. And uh, two listeners, we'll keep you updated on when the next talk will be. Uh, we don't have it scheduled just yet, but we'll stay updated on the PMRA Facebook page, and um, we'll keep you updated. And thanks for tuning in today.